Good morning, everyone. If you want to come back in and find your seats, we're going to make a start. I'm going to be leading us through our next part of our meeting together. Uh, and, and last week, Adrian kicked off our brand new summer series um, called Placed for Purpose. Um, and he did that by telling the whole story of the life of Daniel. Uh, and today and over the coming weeks, uh, we're going to be zooming in on different aspects of Daniel's life in order that we might see how every aspect of our lives is an opportunity to enjoy, to reveal, uh, and to know God. And we too are placed for purpose. We're placed uh, in our gathered moments, both like this, as we meet here together, uh, and in our scattered moments, the, the vast majority of our lives uh, at work uh, and home uh, and study and recovery and rest and chores and fun, all of those we're going to find matter to God. All of those are moments to enjoy him and to add in his colors and his flavors. And just as we often find ourselves in lots of different places, different life stages, different circumstances, different surroundings, so too we find in the first chapter of Daniel, which we're going to be looking at together this morning, that the Israelites, and particularly Daniel and his friends, find themselves in a number of different places. And what we're going to do this morning as we zoom in on Daniel 1 is visit them in each of those different places and see what it is that we can learn from them. And so the first place that we come to on this journey is the unplanned place. And so we find that in the first couple of verses of Daniel 1. It says this, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. And see, this is the unplanned place because none of this was part of the plan. Babylon wasn't part of the plan. The plan, as the Israelites understood it, was the big story of the Old Testament. That in the very beginning, God created humanity to be very good to bear his image to the world and bear creation's praises back to God. And yet what we find is that humanity decides instead to curve in on themselves, seeking after status and knowledge and satisfaction in themselves and forgetting that in God they had the invitation to a royal status, to wonders of knowledge, to boundless satisfaction. And so what we find is that God begins his redemptive plan. He starts with one man, one family, Abraham. He leads them out of the city where he lived, which just so happens to be Babylon. Park that one just for a moment. He leads them into a promised land. He makes them into a nation in order that they might fulfill that first purpose, that purpose given right at the very start to bear God's image to the world and bear the world's praises back to God. Israel were always meant to be an outward-looking people, a people blessed in order to bless the nations of the world, a people amongst whom God would dwell 
in order to call all others to himself. And it seemed to the Israelite people like that was the plan, building up and up and up. And so we reached the time of Kings David and Solomon, the great kings of Israel, where we're told that gold and silver are as common as stones on the street. A trajectory heading even further still, a promised king from the royal line who would one day rule the whole earth, bringing peace and justice and prosperity. But as we pick up the story of Daniel, we find that it's all gone wrong. The plan seems to have fallen apart. Instead of living up to their identity as God's chosen people, Israel too have curved inwards. They've forgotten their covenant with God. They've chased after idols. Instead of being a shining light, they've splintered into two kingdoms, a country at war with itself. Instead of being a blessing to the nations, the nations have come to Israel not to receive from them, but to take, plundering and looting the treasures of the temple. That's what we find as we start the book, that the plan, as it seems, has fallen apart. They've ended up back in Babylon, back where it all started, further away from what seems to be the grand plan than ever before. And I don't know about you, but um, I like to think of myself as a man with a plan. Um, if you've ever visited my home, you'll know that in uh, my hallway, um, I have a, a whiteboard, which I meticulously fill out every week um, with kind of what I'm doing every day, um, with the meals that I'm having, with schedules and activities, um, with kind of, if I'm having an evening in or an evening out, I'll, uh, I'll stand there on a Sunday night um, and I'll ask my housemate, Keith, as well, what are you doing this week? I'll fill in his details as well. Um, <laughs> Because I want to know. <laughs> I want to know. I want to get my week sorted and planned and organized right off the bat. Unfortunately, um, life also tends to happen. Um, and I always find my best laid plans have a little habit of falling apart. Um, I don't know about you, sometimes I, I get home from work uh, and I've got all these ideas about what I'm going to do that evening. You know, um, DIY projects that I've always wanted to do. Um, gardening that needs to be done, cleaning around the house that I haven't done for a worryingly long period of time, and then several hours of a Netflix box set later, it's time to go to bed, and you have to start the whole thing all over again. And my kind of grandiose life plans seem to do the same sort of thing. I always like to think, oh, in one year I'll be here and I'll be doing this and this and this, and then in five years I'll be here, and then 10 years I'll be here. It's not bad to have hopes and dreams, things we'd like to achieve, that sense of moving forward and building something of enduring value is a good desire. It's that God-given desire to fulfill that original mandate to us given right at the start. But it just so happens that God has a habit of messing with my plans. I end up in unplanned places. And when that happens at first, it's unsettling. I don't know if you've ever had a grand plan that's fallen apart. It can take a period of adjustment. We have to think through, what is this thing that's happened? What does it mean for the future? What can I learn from this? What might God be saying to me in it? 
And that same pattern repeats again and again throughout the Bible. It wasn't in Abraham's plan to uproot and leave his home in Babylon. It wasn't in Moses' plan to leave the temple, um, the uh, palace of Pharaoh, um, and lead the Exodus. It wasn't in David's plan to trade in looking after sheep for looking after a nation. Yet in each of them, again and again, we see that God brings them to the unplanned place in order to show that his plans are far bigger and better than ours could ever hope to be. And that they might look really, really messy along the way. They might be really uncomfortable at times. But that we can trust that our loving, faithful Father knows exactly what he's doing. He's accomplishing in us far more. and He's accomplishing through us far more than we could ever think or imagine. And so when we find ourselves here in the unplanned place, we're to see it not as a moment to despair of everything, but to pause and ask ourselves those questions. What does it mean? What can I learn? What might God be saying? And that's what happens to Israel as they begin this period of exile. Just like the first exile that we heard about last week from the garden in Genesis, it's a moment when God shakes them out of their slumber, upsets what seems to be the plan in order to point them back to the true plan. And that was what Israel hadn't understood. It was never about building an empire that just got bigger and bigger and bigger. It was always about that original purpose to bear God's image to the world, to build not an empire, but a kingdom, which begins like a mustard seed inside each of us as we love and serve and seek the welfare of those around us, to reflect the praises of creation back to God as we offer it all back to him again. That's the plan. That's who we're called to be. And so, to help Israel understand that, he carries them into another place, the unknown place, a strange new culture. So we find in the next part of the story, it says this, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men, without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. And among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And this is a big transition for these guys. Jerusalem, where Daniel and his friends have been taken from, was very much the center of the Jewish world. It's um, the place of the temple and the palace. It's the site of great victories and amazing coronations and miraculous acts of God. And for the Israelites, their possession of the land, their being in their home, was very linked to the plan that they thought God was working in and through them. But not only does their exile seem unplanned, 
it also places them in, in an entirely unknown culture. They've been taken from a home where the very streets speak of their collective identity, their history as a people. They've been uncoupled from all the familiarity of home and placed as strangers in a foreign land. And they suddenly have to consider and decide on a whole new set of questions about how to live and how to act, both in their public and in their private lives. And what we see in the way that Daniel and his friends go about living in the unknown place is quite unexpected in one sense. This story is, is not about the kind of brave last stand um, of an outgunned group. That's what we might expect to see, a, a kind of Hollywood version of the life of Daniel. Knowing all that background, what we might expect is a kind of a brave heart figure um, standing alone, taking on a mighty empire and suddenly triumphing against all the odds. Isn't that how the story is supposed to go. Those are the kind of the movies that we like to see, right? It's got all the ingredients there. There's an all-conquering oppressor, and there's a plucky underdog. The stage is set, surely, for a miraculous victory. And if this was a movie, we'd expect to see, you know, kind of dark storm clouds gathering. Um, Daniel, this kind of last freedom fighter, striding into battle against Nebuchadnezzar. We already know he's handsome. We've been told that already. He's kind of got the movie star looks. Um, we expect to see him striking down everyone in his path. That's not the story that we find. We might be expecting a kind of buff action hero. And what we get is a scrawny teenager and a couple of his mates. Ultimately, what we see through the life of Daniel it's a story about how God works himself in the midst of circumstances which seem to be totally opposed to his plans and his promises and his purposes in order to bring about restoration and redemption and revelation of who he is, not just to those who know him, but as an invitation to all to come and receive of the goodness that he has. What we see in the life of Daniel is not a dramatic last stand. It's not an unconditional surrender. It's an unknown place where God makes himself known ever so slowly, ever so patiently, ever so faithfully through the lives of those that he has placed there for purpose. And that might not sound like a Hollywood blockbuster, but it sure sounds a lot more like my life um, than Infinity War um, or Mission Impossible uh, or Mamma Mia 2 does. That's what our lives are about. That's the encouragement for us in the unknown place to center ourselves on the one who has made himself known. We're to live in the unknown place, in the light of the known place of our security and identity in Christ, our hope for the future that we have in him. That's to form the core of how we're to relate to God and to the world around us when all around us seems uncertain. And we need to find ways to keep getting that truth rooted deeply 
within us. And one way that I find really helpful to do that is to take passages and just pray through them and remind myself of the promises that are within. So we might wanna take, for example, a passage like 1 Corinthians 13, that famous kind of wedding passage, and to pray through it and remind us of the promises of God, to read it and see that it says that love is patient and kind, and God says, I am love. See that it says, love is not easily angered, and God says, I am love. It says, love keeps no record of wrongs, and God says, I am love. It says, love always protects, and God says, I am love. It says, love always overcomes, and love never fails. And God says, I am love. That is who he is. When we find ourselves needing to know patience and kindness, needing to know mercy, needing to know forgiveness, needing to know protection, needing to know that there is a hope for the future, we find the truth in who God is. And we remind ourselves that he has given himself for us. And he has given himself to us. That is who he is. So I'd really encourage you this week, soak in some of those truths. Find some passages that proclaim who God is. Psalm 23, Romans 8, Colossians 1, Philippians 2. Pray through them. This is the truth of who God is and he's for you. Receive him again this week. In the unknown place, we are to anchor ourselves in the truth of the God who has made himself known. And that's what will enable us to navigate how we live and how we act when the culture around us seems to be pulling us in all kinds of different directions. And that's what we find in the next part of the story, which happens in the next place that we're visiting together, the unseen place. And so from verse seven, Uh, It says this, the chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. And now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of the Lord, my king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this 
and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. And this whole story, this whole episode um, with the food seems on the surface quite a small thing um, compared to some of the more well-known stories that we find later in the book. They're, they're much more dramatic, aren't they? And there's the furnace and the lion's den. It's life and it's death. And it's forced on a stage before the king to make a decision, who are you going to serve, Babylon or God? But the context we find here is, is very different. They're hidden away in the back room with an official question for us is the same. What do we say yes to and what do we say no to? Because we can see from the story that there are some things which Daniel is willing to accept, where he was willing to integrate into the culture into which he'd been placed. He took on the new education, the new language, even uh, the new name. That, I think, would be a massive thing for us if someone came to us and said, I'm changing your name and it's going to be Belteshazzar. Um, We will probably not be very happy to hear that news. Um, Apologies if anyone here is called Belteshazzar. I don't don't imagine you are. Um, But at the same time, we find Daniel is willing to accept even that which would be a massive thing for us. But for him, there are other things which form a red line that he won't cross. And ultimately, what determined his decisions was that his life was centered on God. His desire, his devotion, his ambition was for God, to enjoy him and to make him known through how he acted. And how he acted was guided by that Jeremiah 29 verse 7 principle that we looked at last week, the instruction to the exiles to seek the welfare of the city that God has placed them in, to go about the normal business of life and do it in such a way that you cause the city to be blessed by it. And when we look at things through that grid, we can see Daniel's perspective. Would a new education, a new language, or a new name enable him to give himself to seeking the welfare of the city? Quite probably. They would give him new experiences, new skills, new opportunities that he wouldn't have had otherwise. Would they cause him to place something else at the center of his life? Daniel weighed it up and he decided that they wouldn't and so he could live with them. He could live with the uncomfortableness of all that newness for the sake of the bigger vision. And that's a real challenge to us. What uncomfortableness are we willing to live with for the sake of reaching our culture? For the sake of reaching those that God has placed us amongst? But when it came to the question of eating food from the king's table, likely requiring the breaking of the Jewish kosher food laws, well, now that was something different. That required an unseating of God from the center of his life. And that's where Daniel draws the line. He knew that to eat from the king's table would require him to put something else at the center. 
food and wine in this case, but it could just as easily have been comfort or success or power or anything else. That's where he draws the line. Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. What is God's? What does God want? He wants our hearts. He wants our lives to be centered on him, the most truths of who he is. And so rejecting the food was for his best because it would have caused him to turn away from God, but it was also for the best of the city. We can only bless those around us from the blessing that we've received. We do good because we know that the one who is good has poured his goodness out to us and upon us. We're not called to be just nice people. We're called to bring the presence of God with us into whatever situation and circumstance we find ourselves. So that's how Daniel makes his decision. But the second thing we see is how he implements that decision. Notice how it's all done in the unseen place, in the back room. Notice the high degree of thoughtfulness towards the chief official, the creativity in producing and providing a solution which works for both parties. We read that uh, God grants the official compassion towards Daniel, but what we see is that Daniel shows tremendous compassion for the official. He seeks to honor God in a way which doesn't threaten that man's job or his life. And again, I think this is a wonderful model for how we are to react when we find ourselves in those unseen situations which might cause us to compromise on what is at the very center. We're not to relent, but at the same time, we don't have to make a big show about it that speaks more about our pride than our compassion for those we enter and we encounter every day. Our desire to bless them, even in the midst of rejecting something, which seeks to put itself at the center. And so that's how we decide and we apply the decision. I think more than that, it's absolutely crucial for Daniel that the first place we see him grappling with all of this is in the unseen place. It's where no one else is watching. It's where nobody else might have noticed if he'd done something differently, if he'd gone the other way. The shape of the story to come makes it clear that this is the starting point of all of those other moments. It's only because they were faithful in the small place, in the unseen place, in the hidden place, that they are able to be faithful in the big place, the exposed place, the visible place. We don't just skip ahead to chapter three and the burning furnace or chapter six and the lion's den because the kind of integrity that we find there doesn't just come from nowhere. It's formed and shaped and grown in moments just like this one and a hundred other moments that Daniel and his friends must have experienced as they adapted to their new surroundings. And so what we find is that having been faithful in the unseen place, God puts them in the unexpected place. From verse 17, it says this, To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kind. 
And at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. Can you imagine what it would have been like for Daniel and his friends to live through the transition that we find within this chapter from the start to the end? Picture yourself there for just a moment. In the first few verses, we find them barricaded in a city while an all-conquering army lays siege to their home. Their historic buildings ransacked. National treasures carried off. It's like Buckingham Palace has been burnt to the ground. The crown jewels taken off far away. And then the people themselves carried into captivity, herded like cattle into a strange new world. And then, just a few short years later, you find yourself standing before the king, given education and opportunities, and in a test, you're found to be 10 times better than anyone else in the whole kingdom. That is a radical turn of events. And it's put them in a massively unexpected place. Can you imagine when they saw those armies first closing in on Jerusalem, they might have thought their lives over. When they were carried off into exile, they didn't know what awaited them. Instead, God gives them an incredible position of influence in one of the largest empires the world had ever seen. It's utterly incomprehensible by human means. But of course, there's a bigger hand at work behind it all. God is the one who has put them into this position. He's given them the skills and the talents they'll need to succeed in the work that he's called them to. And for them, the turnaround is pretty massive. But the same principle rings true for each of us. The same God is working in each of our lives. Each of us is given that same calling as Daniel and his friends, not necessarily to end up before kings, but to do our work and do it well to the glory of God. Working um, as if we're working for God, not for man, um, as Paul puts it in the New Testament, no matter what we're doing. What we find in this unexpected place is a tremendous affirmation of how God delights in us, and both in us and in the content of our work. He cares what we do because he's not a distant, detached deity. He is that God of love. He is that God who's always after our best, who's always seeking opportunities to bring that future reality, that coming kingdom, into the now through us. This story teaches us that God doesn't just love lawyers, he loves justice. He doesn't just take pleasure in nurses and doctors. He longs to see healing come to the sick. He doesn't just care about stay-at-home mums and dads. He cares about homes and families and communities. 
He hasn't just created administrators and cleaners and town planners. He's knitted order into the very fabric of the universe. Florists and flowers, bakers and bread, mechanics and machines. When we do our work well, we are imaging God to the world, just as we were always meant to. That's a holy calling. That's your calling. But whatever you're called to, whatever place God has put you in, to go for it with all of your heart, working as if for God, not for man. And that's a calling that will take our whole lives. Because finally, we see the last place that Daniel finds himself, the unending place. We're told in the last verse of chapter one, verse 21, that Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. That's 70 years from when he was taken into exile. Right from the start of the book, we have this framing of the story that it's not some kind of quickfire, action-packed extravaganza. Certainly, there are some really dramatic um, and frankly, really weird things that happen later in the book, but they're spread out and stretched out over 70 years. And throughout those years, we find Daniel working and serving and praying and giving of himself in order to seek the welfare of the city into which he's been placed for 70 years. That is almost three times my age. It seems to me to be an unfathomably long period of time. And yet that was his life. That's what he gave himself to. You know, as a church, we love to send people. We send a huge number of people um, out from here relative to our size every year to go out into this nation and the nations to make the most of the opportunities that God has put before them to enjoy and reveal his goodness in all kinds of unique contexts. And we're at that point in the year now where plans for the kind of new term, the new academic year are, are taking shape. For some of us, that's gonna mean a change. Moving life stage, moving jobs, moving city, maybe even moving nation. There's much to be said for going and we love to send people. But at the same time, there's much to be said for staying as well. A great many of us won't be called to go. We'll be called to stay. And you're calling to stay, to build church, to build home, to build family, to build community, deeply committed, deeply relational, deeply purposeful, both in the gathered moments like this and in the scattered moments where the vast majority of our lives take place. Your calling to stay is no less valuable than the calling of someone to go overseas to be a missionary or to head to another city for a career or family reason. Staying, bedding in, taking the long view as Daniel did might not seem as glamorous or exciting, but the story of Daniel and in fact, the stories of many of the key figures in the Bible, Abraham and Moses and Jesus, are that God makes us wait. The patient, humble, self-sacrificial service is the key to producing lasting fruit. 
those rhythms of living that we looked at in our pace series. Simply living, seeking more of God, seeking to demonstrate more of his love to those around us. That's the essence of how we are to shape our lives. And it's something that's going to take a long, long time. But if that's how God worked through Daniel, it's how he worked through Abraham and Moses and Jesus, we can know that we're in good company as we do it. And so where does all of this leave us? It leaves us, I hope, ready to keep getting stuck into this book of Daniel. Not seeing it as some kind of Christian survival manual um, that teaches us how to batten down the hatches and wait it all out in here for the world outside to somehow make itself okay again. What we see is that we're to read Daniel as a testimony to God's commitment to redeem for himself people from every nation, to make all things new, even in Babylon, even in Birmingham. It's his intention to extend the transforming presence of his kingdom wherever he sends us, into every part of the world and every sphere of life. We're to live and love as Daniel did, salt and light in our unique situations, imaging God to the world and imaging the praises of the world back to God, bringing the beauty of God's kingdom, not simply to absorb or condemn culture, but to redeem it. And the question I want to leave us with is this. Which of those five places best fits with your unique place at the moment? Do you feel like you're living in the unplanned place, the unknown place, the unseen place, the unexpected place, or the unending place? And if so, how are you being called to love God and love people in that place? And there might be those of us who are here this morning and say, actually, we're not a follower of Jesus. And so what we see there is the invitation to come and get to know him. The God who makes himself known, who gives himself to us in order that he might redeem everything, not just culture, but our lives as well. He's longing to reveal himself to us. Why don't we stand together? I'm going to pray. And then I'll give us a few moments to think about those questions as we finish our time together. Father, I thank you that you are a God who messes with our plans in order that we might see the goodness of your plan. Father, I thank you that you are a God who is not satisfied with plucking people out of a world, condemning it, and throwing it aside. You are a God who is longing to redeem the world through the people that you've put there. I thank you, Father, that you have called us and caught us up in your grand plan that Jesus might be made known in every corner of the earth and that his kingdom, which begins just as a mustard seed of faith, 
might grow to fill the whole earth. Thank you, Jesus, that you're coming again to bring redemption and restoration to everything. And that in this moment, you're calling us to be those who do that, who bring that future, who call it into the now, in whatever unique circumstances and situations we find ourselves. That in whatever place you have placed us, we can know we are placed for a holy purpose. Your purpose to image you to the world and image the world's praises back to you.